Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, a podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. Today I sit down with Australia's first Olympic winter gold medalist, Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury still back in fourth. Tiny skitter on the outside. Oh, and it's Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. It's such a, an honour to be able to have you and to have a chat with me about transitioning into the real world. I like to start the conversation by understanding what, from your perspective, what is the most proud moment of your, of your sporting skating career? Yeah, well, firstly, Liv, thanks for asking me to, to come onto your podcast. I hope it proves to be a really big rating one for you into the future. But yeah, the the proudest moment for me in my skating career, well, there's a few of them and they're not the ones that most people would think. They're not the final where uh, the rest of the field fell over in front of me because that was probably the worst race I skated that entire Olympics. Mm. So in, in short track speed skating, you do the heats, the quarterfinals, the semifinal and the final in about an hour and a half. <laughs> it's not like swimming where you do the heats in the morning and the, and the finals in the evening where you come back the next day. Mm. So for me, I skated... My best race in Salt Lake City in the quarterfinals. I beat a bloke from Canada by the name of Mark Gagnon. He was four-time world champion. I hadn't beaten that prick for eight years. Mm. Uh, and I really show that race on the television. But uh, he's not a prick. He's a good guy. Yeah. But <laughs> for me, for me, that was my highlight. After four Olympic campaigns and training my guts out for 14 years, I was finally able to skate my best at the Olympics because the rest of the time, no one pays any attention to what a speed skater from Brisbane is up to. Mm, that's exactly right because I, I find that fascinating because a lot of the athletes that I've spoken to already, they don't name the the event that they might be most well-known for is the proudest moment of their sporting career. So it's fascinating that probably a lot of people have not seen you race the quarterfinals at Salt Lake City. They just know that that final race where you did you know, you won Australia's first Olympic winter gold. It's a, it was an amazing feat, but there was so much that happened before that moment that led you to that experience. Can you give people kind of an understanding of the, I don't want to say trauma, but you went through a lot to get to that 30, uh, sorry, 90 second race to cross the line first. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, a snapshot of a, a uh, speed skating career of 14 years. You know, I, I trained five hours a day, six days a week for that long to become an overnight success. Yeah. Uh, I competed for Australia in four Winter Olympics. I had a guy's blade go clean through my right leg and I lost three quarters of my blood in a minute, almost died, got 131 stitches in my leg, was lucky to survive. Uh, 18 months before the gold medal, I had a crash in training headfirst into the barrier and broke my neck, fractured the C4 and C5 and had a Halo base brace screwed into my skull for a couple of months. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I'd definitely been around the block in the sport more than once. And, uh, as it turned out in the end, you know, I went to that fourth Olympics to put some demons to rest because I'd skated in three Olympic games for Australia and I hadn't skated my best in any of them. And that was driving me crazy. How do you keep going though? Like after almost dying and having a blade go through your leg. Oh, let me start again. How do winter Olympians do what they do? Because <laughs> you're all crazy in my <laughs> opinion. Like the chance of dying in any of those sports, even 
what's that one where you push the thing across the ice? Like you could die on oh, that. There's, you- there's, there's no chance of dying in curling. That's oh, you the, could uh, die in curling. If you fall over and crack your head open on the ice, there is a chance you might <laughs> die. So, like, uh, how, how do you manage that expectation of wanting to achieve your best physically with also the dangers that come with your sport inherently? Yeah, well, you know what sport's like at the top level, Liv. Once you're in there, you're, you're completely absorbed uh, and the risk of, of what might happen if you fall and break something doesn't even enter your mind. If, if it does, well, you've lost before you even start. Mm. And, you know, the Winter Olympics, that's part of the draw card. That's part of the attraction. That was what drew me to the sport. Even as a kid, anything that went fast, I loved it. Mm. You know, my, my mum tells a story about my uncle pushing me in a pram when – I was 18 months old and all I could say to him was faster, 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 no matter how fast he ran. You know, so when I started speed skating, every time I skated, I got that little bit faster and that was what kept me coming back for more that adrenaline that went with it. Mm. And, you know, the, the danger factor is in some ways, I suppose it's, it's an attraction as well because that, that speed when everything's clicking and you, you lent over at 40 degrees. And you're accelerating out of the turn purely because of the strength of your leg, the setup of your blades, and that that feeling of as you come out of the corner when everything's dialed. That's mm. an incredible feeling, and unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. And that's what you you train so long and so hard for to, to get that incredible feeling. And the only place I have that feeling now is in my head. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because you. Yeah, I don't suppose you're doing that these days. But how does, how does a boy from Brisbane get into speed skating? Yeah, my dad used to do it, so he was the, the national champion a couple of times back in his day, and you know I I saw the passion that he had for it. Uh, he didn't push me until I turned thirteen, and then he started dragging me out of bed because he could see that I potentially had a a future in the sport, and they forced me to go running with him before school, and I hated it. Cycling yeah. with him on the weekends, I hated it. But you know, once I got to see the the sport globally, when I went to my first world championships when I was fifteen. Uh, I watched this Japanese skater, last name Kawasaki, same as the motorbike. Yep. Uh, he he passed three guys on the outside, broke the 1,000-metre world record by 0.8 of a second and got the gold. And I was sitting there in the grandstand. I was the reserve for the Australian team, so I didn't even skate. But I was watching him do that, and I said to myself, I'm going to do that one day. Mm. And that was the last time I needed my old man to push me. Mm. Yeah, once you make that connection, it becomes a lot easier to do the training that's required for sure. So you obviously, you, you didn't have an ideal preparation leading into the Salt Lake City Olympics. How did you manage your injury, breaking your neck? Most people would probably retire. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I broke my neck swimming, I probably wouldn't have gotten back in the water. <laughs> how do you get not only, how do you recover from that physically and then mentally prepare yourself for an Olympic Games. Yeah, well, the, t- the timing of it, I suppose if it had it happened a bit later, I may not have had enough time to get back in the, in the physical condition that I needed to be a contender at the next Olympics. But, you know, I had two and a half months with that halo brace screwed into my skull and I had the whole time to think about what I'd done and what I still had ahead because sometimes it takes something significant in your life to step outside of your daily routine. Mm and actually try and look from the outside in about how you're tracking towards your goals and real big picture thinking because most people are guilty of being stuck in routine most of the time. Yeah, just stuck and, in the grind. Yeah, when, when they screw a halo break into your head and you can't really move, I had two months 
to think about what I still had. And most people around me that were visiting me in hospital were telling me I was done. The mm. doctor who screwed the halo into my head, he told me I'd never skate again. I just packed up my stuff and went to another doctor. Because mm. you know, I, had, I had unfinished business and I'd invested my whole life into it. And to pull the pin with only 16 months of hard work to go out of 14 years, 16 months, that's just a little bit on the end. Yeah. If I don't do that, I know that I'm going to kick myself for the rest of my life. So if i got to die for it or end up in a wheelchair, I'll take that risk. I mean, that's a, that's a big call, you know, to kind of put your, your body and your health on, on the line like that. But do you, it, it, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Do you feel like that experience and that moment almost was a turning point for your skating? Do you feel like that was almost the, the first step towards that gold medal? In a way, I mean, probably the, the biggest moment of clarity that I had in my life was, was when I got my leg cut open mm. many years earlier and I had three quarters of my blood spilled around me and I could feel my whole body going in shock and my eyes closing. And I said to myself, if you lose consciousness, you're going to die. Mm. And I was able to use that as a positive when I came back to the sport because you can find a positive in anything if you look hard enough for it. And, you know, on the back of COVID, you got to look harder because mm. not everything's positive and glittery like it may have been before. Is that the name of your podcast? Yeah, yeah all that glitters, <laughs> that's right. Not all that glitters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so not everything glitters as much as it did, at, at least at the moment, as it did pre-COVID, you know. And for me, I was able to use that in that if I was having a difficult day in training and I had that lactic acid building up in my legs and it felt like it was too hard, I'd try and think back to when I was lying on the ice in Canada with three quarters of my blood spilled around me. Mm. And I knew how much power I had inside me. And, and I, I drew on that for the rest of my skating career, including after I'd broken my neck. I still had unfinished business to go in the sport and my chances of winning medals were already in the revision mirror. Mm. I was favourite to win eight years before I got the gold medal and I got knocked down in the first round. So I just hadn't been able to produce them on the biggest stage in the world, the Olympic Games, and that 16 months was only a short space of time. So it didn't matter what the people around me told me. Uh, there was only one opinion that mattered, and that was the one that was between my ears. It's such an incredible achievement in itself to go to four Olympics. I mean, the chances of going to one Olympic Games, let alone two, let alone three, let alone a fourth. And you say that the best race you had was in the quarterfinals. What was the mindset leading into the semis then? How did you, how did you prepare? What was your race strategy to make it through to that final? Yeah, the semis were uh, a different thought process. Uh, I had one of my teammates come running in with the draw and he handed me the piece of paper and there was five skaters in it instead of four. One guy had been advanced and, I'm sitting there with my coach and my teammate and I looked at the other four skaters and I said, I don't think I can beat any of them. Mm. And my coach agreed with me. <laughs> Thanks for the bonus confidence. <laughs> yeah, so we decided that the best chance of me getting into the final was to get on the ice in the semifinal and stay out of the way because I was into my third race in an hour. And at 28 years of age, the oldest guy, not just in the whole field, uh, in, the, in the semifinal, the oldest guy in the entire field field of the Olympics. So, yeah. you know, if, you, if I'm looking at it through experience and judgment rather than heart, because sometimes heart gets in the way, mm. if I'm just looking at it through my brain and what I know, 
then I haven't got the lactic acid tolerance to back up that many times in an hour or an hour and a half anymore. Mm. And I suppose in a way with my coach and my teammates' help, I was able to uh, get the heart out of the way. And, yeah, as it turned out, the uh, the semi-final, I skated pretty good, but that was a pile-up, so I was able to sneak into the final there. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's incredible perspective to be able to sort of take that, take the ego out of it, and recognize what your strength could be in that. And that well, is, there's there's some perspective there, Lib. There's also a shitload of luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it it is. But the, there's so much experience that has gone into recognizing what you needed to do in that moment, and that's what needed to be done. And I think that is incredible and and so was the was that attitude was that race strategy the same as what you went into with the final as well it was yeah but the hard tried to get in the way again then too you know i started thinking well geez i've been training my whole life for this now i'm in the final maybe maybe i can find something special Mm. but again my coach disagreed and she shut me down (laughs) she's a little chinese little chinese lady i think she's around five foot her name's ann zhang and she speaks in broken English. So before the final, when my heart was getting in the way, she says, Stephen, forget that. Go out there and final stat. Wait, hope for mistake. We get bronze medal very happy. <laughs> <laughs> she really uh, brought you down to earth, didn't she? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that's, that's how she speaks. She misses out every second word, but she still gets the point across. Yeah, very well and truly got that point <laughs> across. Sometimes in life you need the, the right reinforcement from the right person at the right time and that's that's what a mentor is so you know if you haven't got that mentor in your life and, you, and you're listening to this well have a think about who you could approach to ask for help because Aussies are not very good at asking for help mm. and experienced people are not very good at giving it unless they're asked first so don't be afraid to ask it's such a and such an important point i think that we can learn so much from so many different people's perspectives and experiences, which is partly why I want to have these conversations because it's it's absolutely <laughs> incredible to to hear your story. I want to take you to the moment where you crossed the line or even just before, the moment where you saw the pileup happen. You saw your opportunity coming towards you in form of the finish line and crossing that first. How did you feel in that moment? Well, yeah, the uh, the final lap of the race, I was the lactic acid had definitely kicked in. I'd you know <laughs> dropped off about fifteen meters off the other the other skaters in the final, which for me had never really happened before in my career. So that was quite disappointing that I hadn't been able to stay in the slipstream. Mm. Uh, and I saw the Chinese guy fall going into the last turn, and I thought, well, that's fourth. That's not really any better than fifth. <laughs> yeah. From there, I set up my final corner and corner of my eye, I saw the other three. They all went down, and from that moment, instantly I knew that I didn't have to skate anymore. All I had to do was glide, and I didn't know what the appropriate response was. The the look on my face tells it all, and there was a second or two of celebration before the realisation of the judge's decision and 16,500 Americans in a grandstand booing at you. Mm. (laughs) That's just goosebumps. Like I just can't even imagine... Having that moment and then feeling that sort of almost retaliation from the the crowd, like not yeah. Well, Apollo, Apollo, I know the American was the uh, the overwhelming favourite, and mm. he was tangled up in the pileup. So the the crowd was very disappointed and angry that 
Apollo didn't get the gold medal that the media all expected him to win. Mm. How do you process that then? Because you've you've spent, as you said, 14 years, you know, five hours a day, six days a week. You've gone through, you know, life-threatening injuries and you've done the best races of your career. You've had the best race strategy. And then to cross that line and have that sort of judgment, I guess, for, for your achievement. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was instant judgment. Mm. Uh, I haven't really told this story often before, but there was one guy close to the front in the grandstand, and uh, he shouted at the top of his voice, wipe that smile off your face, Bradbury. You don't deserve shit. Wow. And that was like 10 seconds after I'd crossed the line. And uh, I just looked at him and said, mate, come down here, I'll race you. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that part of it was until the judge's decision was officially made, nobody knew what the result was going to be. Everyone was thinking there might be a re-race. So your mind had to quickly get ready for potentially skating again in about three minutes' time. Uh, There was a bit of blood on the ice. The American, the Canadian both got little cups. So they, uh, they were straight off the ice thinking they've got to get stitches and come back out in about three minutes' time yeah. or put some, uh, put some hefty Band-Aids on to cover some simple cuts that they had. And, yeah, for me, I was the last one left out there on the ice and I didn't know what the judges were going to decide either. And I thought, well, if they announce me the winner here, which I think they're going to, I'm not going to do a victory lap with the Aussie flag. Yeah. <laughs> not under these circumstances. So I got off the ice too. And then just after I got off on the Jumbotron in the stadium, it came up with the gold medal and my name next to it. And I knew that was the official decision. And I just sort of looked up and there was two or three seconds there where I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see anybody. It was just a few seconds there that felt like they were mine. What an amazing story. (laughs) It's just, it just, it, it sort of blows me away that you can have worked your ass off for so many years and to have, the thing is you put yourself in that position, you know, like I understand that it, it would have been frustrating obviously from the other athletes perspective, but that would be the reality of your sport constantly. People fall and that happens from time to time. And unless there's sort of foul play with someone taking someone out, I imagine that would happen often. And that's how people do progress through, you know, quarters, semis, finals, and ultimately win medals. Well, it, it can. And, you know, the, the likely scenario prior to the final was for me to pick up a, a bronze medal through other people's mistakes. And mm. it was really weird. Uh, in the change room before the final, I had skaters from other countries that I'd been racing against for a decade trying to get into the Australian team change room. And Australian team change room is pretty small at the Winter Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the swimmers change room. <laughs> There's three or four people in there. But, uh, <laughs> You know, so I had guys that I'd lost too many times, that I'd beaten quite a few times as well. They were coming into the change room. A guy named Nicky Gooch from, from the UK he came in and he sat down. He said, Steve, um, this is really weird, but I want to offer you some advice. Please tell me you're getting on the ice to stay out of the way in the final. Yeah. And my coach and I just laughed because we were already doing that. And I said, yeah, yeah mate, we know what we're doing. It's all good. <laughs> and then Martin Johansson from Sweden came in. Rusty Smith from the USA came in and, I'd never had any tactical advice from my competition in my life. Yeah. But, you know, those guys were just thinking, well, 
I would love to be in that position. And I just want to make sure that he's not going to go out there and be stupid and mix it up with guys that he can't beat anyway. Amazing. I, I feel sad though that you didn't feel like you could celebrate by having a victory lap. And and I and I know you had that moment, those few seconds that were yours to to absorb that achievement, but I feel sad. I, ce- I celebrated for I celebrated for about two years after I got home. Okay. okay, cool, I cool, a, cool, cool. <laughs> I had a I had a beer with most people in Australia. <laughs> but I was just going to touch on that. So you know, I I imagine on some level it 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 is wonderful. Obviously, you've been dubbed the last man standing. You know, the luckiest gold medalist that Australia's ever had, and all of these things. But it, it, on some level, is it is it also can it be frustrating to feel like it was just a lucky a lucky moment? No, it's not frustrating. Um, you know, I'm the luckiest individual Olympic gold medalist in history. Mm. Winter or summer Olympics. I reckon there's probably some swimmers in relays that swam in the heat that got the gold medal that were nowhere near good enough to be in the final were probably a bit luckier than me to get a gold. But in an individual event, I don't think anything of that scale where there was pile-ups in the semifinal and the final will maybe ever happen again in any sport, you know. But the, the fact that I'm the luckiest doesn't change the fact that I was the guy there to take opportunity when things went wrong for the competition. And whilst I was incredibly lucky, as we talked about before, there was there was a little bit of strategy, experience, and judgment built into that. Mm. So, did you know that you were going to retire after after Salt Lake City? Like, was that always the intention going into the Olympics? And getting the gold was kind of cemented. Yes, I'm going to kind of ride this for as long as possible. <laughs> or what? What was the intention before the Olympics? Were you planning on retiring? Uh, win, lose, or draw. That was. That was it. I was the oldest skater in the entire Olympic field at that point, and physically my body couldn't recover in training and the back-to-back races of a, a major international competition where you got to back up every 25 minutes the way that I used to be able to when I was younger. So, you know, it was about having that one last shot on the biggest stage in the world and being able to, to satisfy myself that I could do my best on that biggest stage and, you know, being a a winter Olympian from Brisbane. I did it in anonymity for the other three years and mm. 355 days. And then for, for 10 or 12 days, every four years, people have a look. Yeah. <laughs> did you have a plan like in retirement? Did you, were you preparing for retirement? Did you know what you wanted to go into or were you just kind of hoping for the best? <laughs> I had a business making custom-made speedscapes. That, oh, wow. Uh, I had, we had 20% of the field wearing our boots in the Olympics where I won the gold. Oh, amazing. Apollo Ono, Apollo Ono, the American who got the silver, he was on boots that I'd helped make for him. But, uh, yeah, so that was a business that I had going. But I'd also uh, gone through the qualification to become a firefighter. Oh. And the, la- the last stage was after I got back from the Olympics and it was the interview. And I sat down with the three guys from the Queensland Fire Service and they looked at me and they said, Steve, if you want to be a fireman, you can be a fireman, but just tell us about the gold medal. Because it it would have been very strange because, as you said, you had three Olympic campaigns of being almost anonymous. On the world stage, you know, you're you're there, but Australians didn't really know who you were. And then all of a sudden you would have been just absolutely thrust into the national, international spotlight. How do you 
manage that? <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a shock to the system. I remember I I came off the plane in Brisbane and I'd, I got to sit in business class all the way back from LA, which isn't that the biggest thrill? Unheard of. <laughs> I've never done that before in my life. And uh, I'm walking up the gangway of the plane, and I saw a sea of people and cameras and media. And I just kept walking up the gangway, and I thought, oh, it must be someone famous on this flight. <laughs> They're and, waiting uh, for someone interesting. Then I, <laughs> yeah. Then, then I stopped, and I went, oh shit, I think it's me. <laughs> and yeah, from from that moment. It was it was chaos for at least six months, and I went from a speed skater trainer at Acacia Ridge Ice World mm. in the western suburbs of Brisbane to the most recognisable person in Australia overnight. And you know that came with with a lot of fun, but you know also a lot of intensity. Mm. I went down to the Grand I went down to the Grand Prix about a week after uh, I got the gold, and to move around down there at the Grand Prix, I had to wear a cap and sunglasses. I had to put a disguise on or I couldn't go anywhere. It was uh, insanity. Well, because you were so recognisable, especially with, <laughs> with your, your blonde hair. Yeah. <laughs> with haircuts, yeah. got rid of that now. I'm too old. It's fallen out too, look. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, it, yeah, it must have been almost suffocating because you're like you want to celebrate and, as you said, you had a, a beer with almost everyone in Australia <laughs> in the next two years. But to go from... A boy from the western suburbs of Brisbane to you know an international name. It must have been suffocating at times. Well, not really. No, it was it was nice to be recognised, you know, because as we've been through, I had a hell of a story and mm. I had a lot of years in the bank, and nobody wanted to know about it. And then everyone wanted to know about it, so I kind of had plenty to tell as well. So, has that influenced what you've gone into now? Because you you do a lot of a lot of public speaking about your story. For sure, yeah, and uh, you know that's something that initially I didn't realise was a career opportunity mm. uh, during those two years where I was having those beers with people all the time. Uh, I was a little bit preoccupied, but um, yeah, my wife was able to. My now wife Amanda and I, we got three kids. We've been together for sixteen years. Wow! And she sat me down one day, and this was not long after we'd met. Towards the end of that two-year block where I was partying my ass off. Mm. And uh, she basically said, well, you know, if we're staying together, then you got to get some shit together here. Mm. And, you know, we kind of nutted it out and I thought, well, you know, I'm getting paid to go and speak at some conferences and events here and there and I'm not really that good at it. And I'm getting paid already. So what would happen if I did become really good at it and I started to become an expert at what I do on stage? So I put my head into it. I started working with a, a comedian and a professional speechwriter, you know, and I honed my craft and I learned about things that you do on stage like pausing and timing and body language and got my AV and videos and slides and music and, you know, put the whole thing together more like a show than a keynote speaker. Mm. And then I started promoting myself to the speakers bureaus, event management companies, and it went from two gigs a, a month to three gigs a week very quickly. And, you know, that turned into basically a full-time job straight away as soon as I'd gotten all of my ducks in a row. And, you know, there was a lot of work in that too. And, and I got a foot in the door and was able to see that opportunity. Um, a lot of, well, most people around me said, well, Steve, you, you better go and figure out what your next career is because people aren't going to pay you to come and speak at their conferences for much longer. Mm. 
but they had no idea about the conference industry. They could be a bricklayer who's telling me that he doesn't know anything about, about that space. So mm-hmm. I went and sought out the people that did know. And there was one guy who used to run a, a very successful speakers bureau. He was a, a keynote speaker himself. He died quite a few years ago. His name was Ron Tacky. And he was one of the first guys I knocked on his, his office door in Sydney. This was probably would have been 2005, I think. And one of the things he said to me in his American accent, he said, Steve, if you want to be a keynote speaker, you can be a keynote speaker for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? <laughs> I can. And, you know, to, to have that sentence come from somebody who'd made it as a speaker for 20 years, didn't have a gold medal behind him, you know, he's and, and started a speaker's bureau and, you know, making a good living out of that too. was like, okay, well, you know, this is the guy who's, who's got the track record. I'm listening to him. I find that really interesting because you obviously, you had that two years and you kind of got to that point where you needed the next thing because I think a lot of athletes get told very quickly that they're going to become irrelevant and that, you know, that they need to kind of do all the things to... Well, you you want to do something pretty quick because otherwise you start thinking about making a comeback. Yeah, like someone I know. I don't know who would do that. That seems silly to make a comeback. <laughs> do you feel like that was something that you thought about for a moment? Definitely had thoughts of it, but it was, you know, it, it was completely unrealistic in a, yeah. in a sport like mine and yours where you've got to have a, a big cardio tank before you even start working on the skills. You know, you've got, you got two to three years of cardio that you've got to get through. Mm. Not like golf where you just got to have the skills and you don't have to be fit, you know, it's a bit different. <laughs> I have to say at 36 and, you know, post three children, I still have moments where I'm like, maybe I could make a comeback for the Brisbane Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll be like 47, but uh, yeah. maybe. <laughs> have you got Have you got Duncan Armstrong's phone number? Yeah. I, I, I'd give him a call and talk to him about his, uh, his comeback to Sydney 2000 and how that went. <laughs> Good point. It may be. We'll put it on the maybe pile. It's not a not, not a never, but it's a maybe pile. What was the hardest thing for you to leave skating behind? What was, what's the things that you missed the most? Oh, there's three things. Lifestyle, which initially when I finished the sport, I didn't think I would miss ice rinks, hotel rooms, airports. but I do miss that being in a bubble mm. with all the best other skaters in the world and seeing where you finish. My teammates, definitely, you know, you have that camaraderie and, you know, I wouldn't have got the gold medal without the other boys in the relay team because you need all those people to feed off every day in training to work together. Yeah. You know, even though you're the only one out there on the ice, I couldn't have done it without those boys. And, you know, I always buy them beers now when, whenever we catch up, my shout. Good on and, you. Uh, yeah, and the other thing that I probably miss and crave more than anything, and I get a little bit of it these days out of playing uh, fairly reasonable level uh, club tennis in Brisbane, nice. is the competition. You know, because normal life doesn't offer you the, the measuring stick that the Olympics does. Mm. You know, I've got, a, I got three kids, you know, they're all, all school age now, so I've got to get them out of bed, get them to eat their breakfast, pack their lunches, brush their teeth, get the uniforms on get them in the car, drop them off at school, and I don't get a trophy for it. <laughs> we should, though. I feel like we should. <laughs> three, three kids make training for the Olympics seem like a walk in the park, I tell you. Mm. It's, uh, you know, you, probably one of the things that 
athletes have to get their head around after they retire is an adjustment, which is usually, not always, some people are good on multiple platforms at once and they've got something else to step into at a high level mm. straight away, but most don't. So you've got to be prepared to adjust to downsize. Mm. And yeah, I had a, I had another serious downsize when COVID hit yeah. March last year and my diary emptied in about 48 hours for the whole year. Wow. Um, I was sitting here exactly where I am right now at my dining table with the wife across the other side and we had tenants moving out of rental properties. My income dropped by 97%. And it was just like, what the fuck are we going to do now? Yeah. And I was a real negative human for a couple of weeks. Not a good bloke to be hanging around. Felt as though I'd been ripped off and you know, my whole life had just been taken away by this virus that had stepped in. After a couple of weeks, I got over myself and I went out and did something I've never done. Bought a hedge trimmer. <laughs> <laughs> I can see my hedges out, out the window behind this here now. They're bloody perfect, I can tell you. <laughs> so that was a serious downsides. But, you know, that helped me get rid of that negative stuff out of my veins and gave me that little personal satisfaction hit from looking at those hedges. Mm. You know, and that's, I think, where an athlete has to go to a degree when they finish their career. You've got to find a way to get that kit of personal satisfaction, you know, and you can push it into the background for a while like I did, drinking too much for a couple of years or, you know, a lot of other athletes get distracted on things worse. Mm. But you have to be able to downsize because when you get that personal satisfaction hit, it doesn't matter what level it is, that starts you on a path to making it a higher level and starting to become elite in something else. Because you know how it feels to be really, really good at something, Lib. Mm. Because when you're there and you're genuinely elite, you know it, and you get that adrenaline every single day. Mm. And if you can get that in something else outside of sport, in business or whatever, because you're really good and you know it, you get adrenaline every day when you show up to work, mm. it's not work. Yeah, it becomes a passion. It becomes, yeah. it's just in your blood. In every question step. is question is are you prepared to do the hard work to get to the adrenaline? Do you feel like that's where you kind of got to? Because you mentioned that you you were probably drinking too much, you were probably not taking care of yourself. Do you feel like there was a moment that you realised that you needed to turn your your life around? Was that conversation? Yeah, that was my, life? yeah, yeah, that was when my wife sat me down. You know, she didn't. Didn't say it in as many words, but it was basically an ultimatum. You know, mm. if we're staying together, then you got to pick your act up, otherwise we're done. Mm. And you know, I knew that I was in love with my wife, and you know, we wanted to get married and have kids and all that. But it uh, it was a moment of clarity, and you know, you can you can relate that to. I think a lot of people now might be getting a bit distracted, getting a bit not where they need to be focused on, and they're blaming it on COVID. Mm. as the reason for why they're not doing anything. And there's always something that you can improve on. You know, if we go into another lockdown and you're stuck at home, well, there's things that you can do that you've probably been putting off for years, you know, your spring cleaning or mm. something else that can get you a step down the road for when things are back to normal so that you're ahead of the competition because it's it's those little 1% and those little hits of personal satisfaction, you know, like when you wash the car and you look at it and you go, yeah, that looks pretty good. Yeah. yeah, that's a little one, but, you know, you've got to start small and build them up. I find that such an interesting 
perspective that you have because it's it's exactly I think what I've experienced in my transition because it's hard you can't ever replace competing on the world stage like that is just not something that you will ever be able to replicate but there are little payoffs every single day as humans that we can do you know whether it's making the bed first thing in the morning or for me it's like hanging out the clothes on the washing line and just like getting it in like there's just enough pegs there's just enough line to get all of the load on and I'm like yeah I know <laughs> oh if, if you're getting personal satisfaction out of hanging the wash and live you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> winning <laughs> uh, but um, one, one of the things that I, I used to use in my sporting career was um, I used to have a sign stuck to the ceiling in my bedroom that read this is the Olympics get up because I knew that my competition was getting up and I call it a, a visual cue. Apparently that's what the uh, more scientific name for it is. And I talk about using visual cues when I presented an organization because I, I use one now that my wife won't, won't let me stick it on the roof because the blue tape might take the paint off or something. <laughs> but, uh, I, have, I have one next to my bed that reads family first. Mm. And that's what switches my brain into kid mode when I get up every day because Sometimes I just want to be a selfish prick of an athlete and look after myself first. Yep. But when you've got kids, you can't afford to do that. You do get time for yourself, but that comes later. Mm, exactly right. So when your schedule cleared, did you have something else to do during that COVID time? Is, was there another passion that you kind of started <laughs> to pursue? I happen to have one right here, Liv. Ah. Called Last Man Standing Australian Lager. I Me and a couple it. of mates uh, had started our own beer probably oh, about six months before COVID hit. And for me, it was always a little bit of a backup plan. Mm. Uh, and it's something that we wanted to do. We talked about it for a decade, but we never got around to it. And so when my diary cleared after I'd gotten the hedges perfect, <laughs> <laughs> I, I called up one of my business partners, Damien Froster. I said, Damo, uh, I've got a bit of time on my hands now. What can we do to get this beer going? So we've got Last Man Standing Australian Lager now in, I think, about 130 bottle shops between Cairns and Coffs Harbour. They're in all the Dan Murphys in that range, Cairns to Coffs. Um, We're in a bunch of other independent bottle shops in southeast Queensland, some BWS, and we're on tap in about 35 venues, the Caxton, the Port Office, the Pineapple, the South Bank Beer Garden. All the important uh, Brisbane locations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go to uh, lmsbrewing.com and uh, there's a beer locator on there. It'll tell you where the best lager ever brewed is stocked. <laughs> <laughs> Was that something that you always wanted to do, like considering you were having beers with everyone around the country? Was it something <laughs> that you kind of go, oh, yeah, maybe that's something that might be something that you can sink your teeth into? Yeah, well. I suppose as far as Olympians go, I've, I've never really been orthodox mm. in the way that I, I did things. My skating technique wasn't exactly out of the textbook. Uh, the way I won the gold certainly wasn't out of the textbook. Mm. And I can't think of another Olympian who's gone into alcohol of any description. No, there's not many. <laughs> yeah, so that's a little bit unorthodox there too. But, you know, the, the two guys I'm in business with, it was uh, their dad was a bloke named Roy Prosser who used to play for the Wallabies back in the 70s, and Roy became one of the head honchos at Carlton United Breweries after his rugby career, and I got teamed up with him on a golf cart one day at an Olympic fundraiser event, and uh, he's asking me 
what I'm doing. And he says, mate, you're in the wrong hemisphere. And we're raising money for the summer Olympic team. What are you even doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we, be- we became fast friends because when someone hangs shit on you straight away, you generally like them. Yep, that's, that's it. Oz. <laughs> and so then I became mates with his sons and we all talked about one day maybe doing our own beer together. Mm. Now, Big Roy passed away about 12 years ago and his sons and I kept the conversation going but didn't do anything about it until two years ago where we said, well, we're going to regret it if we don't do it. So we know it's the most competitive market imaginable, mm. mainstream beer. Mm. It's an easy drinking lager. It's not a craft. It's got no fruit or other corruption in it. And you're looking at about 58 bucks a carton, 18, 19 bucks a six-pack. So it's well-priced. And uh, we're three local lads having a crack and trying to take on the, the might of Asahi, Asahi and Kieran that own just about every other beer brand in Australia now. Forex, VB, Carlton, Byron Bay Lager, anything else you can think of is now owned offshore. So if there's one thing I reckon we can do on the back of COVID, it's support something that's, uh, that's still Australian-owned, whether it's my beer or not. But I'd like it to be my beer as well as everything else Australian-owned. Do you feel like it, it's been a great project for you to sink your teeth into to kind of grow something from nothing into, you know, an actual product that you're now selling? It's amazing. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's been grounding, that's for sure, going and standing in bottle shops, giving out free samples to people for an Olympic gold medalist, you know, he used to get paid a fair bit to go and speak on stages and conferences and events. Is a, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big downsize for a while. But, yes. you know, everything starts, at, everything starts at the ground floor, you know, and like, you know, you're, like what you're doing with this podcast, maybe one day it, it turns into one of the highest rating podcasts on the planet. Well, and, with conversations uh, like this, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, um, you know, secretly in my mind, and it probably can't happen because I don't, think we could get to the size of Budweiser. But mm. honestly, I would like Last Man Standing Lager to be the Brisbane 2032 Olympic beer. Yes, I love it. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, Steve, it's been such a great conversation. I have one more question. Do you ever still go out on the ice? Do you ever still go shush? I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> That's how you skate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly like that. It's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know, I reckon it's probably the same as where you're at. Uh, it's not a social activity for me. Mm. When I could do it at a very high level, it was exhilarating. Mm. You know, doing over 50 kilometres an hour, cranked over at 40 degrees and the acceleration and, you know, feeling the wind go through past your ears is a, is a good feeling. But, you know, the, the level I can skate at now is so far below that that, mm. It's just not fun. So, you know, that's why I play a bit of tennis and do a bit of surfing. Would you get your kids into to skating or would you want them to be Olympians? Oh, I wouldn't mind them being an Olympian in any sport that isn't inside an ice rink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pushing my girls towards tennis, so hopefully we can, you can push your kids into tennis. Right. We can travel around the world. It'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've, got to start, you've got to start them young there. I've been, I've been playing for about five years and uh, – I've played against a girl, her name's Nicola. She's almost 14, and I think she's ranked second in Queensland. She beat me last week. Like, come on. <laughs> You're like, that's a blow to the ego, Nicola. Thanks for that. Yeah. She does train like 25 hours a week, though. I'm playing twice a week if I'm lucky. But 
anyway. Excuses, excuses. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Better than <you> on the day. <laughs> awesome. Steve, thank you so much for our conversation. It's um I think it's amazing to see what you've been able to create with your experience, with your achievements. And I just think so many people will resonate with what with what you've spoken about. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Liv, and look out for the uh the Bradbury movie coming to a, a cinema probably sometime. 2023 hopefully oh my god what <laughs> how did we get to this point of the conversation what there's a bradbury movie coming out yeah there is there's a young guy his name's daniel weber he played uh he played vince neal on the motley crew documentary called the dirt the yeah. movie doco about the 80s metal band if you haven't seen that it's pretty awesome but yeah uh, he's he's learning to speed skate now so there's still a lot of pieces of the puzzle that need to come together but yeah, Stuart Beatty wrote the script who did Pirates of the Caribbean and Collateral and some other not very well-known movies. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it's a project that's been on the back burner for a long time, but hopefully one day the, the Bradbury movie gets to the cinema. And, you know, my story is one that I think parents could, could take their kids to and say, well, you know, if you're prepared to give all of yourself to something, then maybe something like that can happen to you one day too. You got to lead with this story, Steve. That's amazing. <laughs> You're going to have a movie. That's incredible. Congratulations. That's uh, amazing. I can't wait to to see it, and I can't wait to take my girls to it because I think your story is really remarkable, and so many people can learn so much. So, again, thank you for your time. Thanks, Lib. See you. Have a good day. I love that chat with Stephen Bradbury. He is such a, an incredible athlete with so many amazing life lessons, I think, for all of us to take away. So if you want to learn more about Steve and what he's up to, make sure you check him out on Instagram at Stephen Bradbury Official, or you could head to his website, stephenbradbury.com. Maybe hire him for your next speaking engagement that you need for your company. I think that would be pretty incredible. Otherwise, if you want to learn more about where you can find Last Man Standing Beer, check out lmsbrewing.com.au but we will have links to all of those in the show notes so make sure you like and subscribe and share and if you are feeling so inclined you can leave a review and make sure you let me know anyone that you might want me to chat to at all that glitters pod would be a great place to start and otherwise i will talk to you next week